All the latest business news from WA, delivered daily. At close of business, news briefing. Good afternoon and welcome to the At Close of Business podcast. This is Simone Grogan with your Tuesday afternoon headlines. Port Hedland's Lumsden Point will be one of the Pilbara-based ports slated for an upgrade as part of a $565 million funding boost to expand export and import capacity. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announced the federal government funding in Port Hedland this morning as he continues his Western Australian visit. The $565 million package will be invested in supporting common user port upgrades in the Pilbara, with a portion to be invested toward expanding Lumsden Point. The state government has already contributed $96.5 million to the Lumsden Point expansion project, according to today's joint media release. Mr Albanese said the funding would help unlock trade and investment opportunities, local jobs and help drive towards Australia's net zero target. The federal government announced in April that $280 million had been allocated for Lumsden Point in the 2022-2023 budget. Premier Mark McGowan said the port expansion would help position Port Hedland at the forefront of future green industries. The first stage of works at the project comprises construction of two seawalls and a new causeway to connect the wharf to a proposed logistics hub. Queensland-based engineering contractor MGN Civil was awarded the contract to complete the first seawall. The company was also behind earthworks for the state government's $121 million Spoil Bank Marina project in Port Hedland. Mr Albanese today held his cabinet meeting in Port Hedland for the first time before meeting with Indigenous and community leaders. He said Port Hedland was an economic powerhouse for the country but had faced a number of challenges. And in other news, Qantas will splash out $100 million to upgrade lounges around the world, including doubling the seats of one of its regional Western Australian facilities. The national carrier today announced a new Broome regional lounge would be constructed as part of the $100 million investment. The proposed new build will double the capacity of the existing lounge from about 49 to 100 seats and is expected to open next year. Other planned upgrades include a new first lounge at London's Heathrow Airport, the reopening of Hong Kong International Lounge, refurbishment and expansion of Sydney International Business Lounge and a new Hobart Qantas Club. Today's announcement is additional to previously revealed upgrades, which included redevelopment of the regional lounge at Port Hedland Airport. That lounge is expected to open in 2024. Qantas Group Chief Executive Alan Joyce said the business was back in profit and able to make long-term investments. The proposed first lounge at Heathrow Airport is expected to align with the start of direct flight routes between the UK and the east coast of Australia, titled Project Sunrise, in 2025. And in mining news, softer iron ore prices combined with a 70% spike in diesel cost crunched BHP's underlying profit by 32% during the first six months of FY23. BHP reported a US $6.5 billion underlying attributable profit for the half-year ended December 31, 2022, in comparison with a US $9.7 billion profit in the same period last year. Output on a 100% basis from Western Australian iron ore operations was 146 million tonnes, a 1% improvement on the prior period. But costs across the iron ore division came in above BHP's guidance for the period, which the group attributed mainly to higher diesel costs and labour costs. Western Australia iron ore unit costs rose by 13% to US $18.30 per tonne and are expected to land at the higher end of a targeted US $18 to US $19 range for FY23. On a C1 basis, however, which excludes third-party royalties, costs were $15.50 per tonne. BHP has maintained the target nonetheless and says it remains in a strong position overall. BHP's Chief Financial Officer David Lamont told media this morning that diesel costs had risen 70% period on period and that the company was dealing with an effective inflation rate of approximately 12%. 
With average realised iron ore prices down by 25%, underlying earnings for iron ore operations were down by US $3.5 billion to US $7.6 billion. BHP declared a US 90 cents fully franc dividend, its fifth largest ever, but still marked a 40% haircut on its last interim payout. Chief Executive Officer Mike Henry maintained a positive demand outlook for the second half of FY23 and into FY24. And that's all from me this afternoon. Coming up next on the podcast, Matt McKenzie interviews Jordan Murray about his latest catch-up with Federal Resources Minister Madeleine King. The business world is teeming with opportunities to succeed, and every day is a chance for the ambitious to learn, know and grow. Over recent years, we have built the greatest business journalist team in WA, delivering you the most trusted, comprehensive, intelligent and up-to-date news across every sector, every platform, every day. No fluff, all informative stuff. At Business News, we believe progress boils down to one simple habit. That is, what you subscribe to today shapes what you will become tomorrow. Subscribe to success. Subscribe to Business News. Visit businessnews.com.au forward slash subscribe for more information. You're listening to Act Close of Business. I'm Matt McKenzie, here with Jordan Murray today to talk about a portfolio in the federal government that is kind of quintessentially West Australian in a way, although it's also in recent times been held by East Coast politicians who have a bit more of a focus on coal than iron ore. But in this case, Jordan, in the Albanese government, it is Madeleine King, a West Aussie who represents the electorate of Brand. She does, which is near where I live, down in the southern suburbs of Perth. Uh, traditionally very working class suburbs like Quinana and Rockingham, very industrialised suburbs uh, along the coast. And as I write in the latest edition of Business News, it's pretty hard to miss the significance of her holding the role. As you say, she's a West Australian and the last West Australian to hold the job was Gary Gray, in fact, in the dying days of the ill-fated Rudd government. Uh, Since then, it's been held by a number of, as you say, East Coast uh, MPs. Josh Frydenberg was the only Victorian from an inner suburban uh, electorate to hold the job, but it was in fact two Queenslanders uh, and one New South Welshman. Uh, from the mostly coal-producing regions of New South Wales who held the job uh, over the years of the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison government. So I thought it was interesting to go from uh, MPs who were drawn from states that traditionally rely more on their coal mining industry than anything to uh, choosing an MP who represents a state that is heavily reliant on iron ore mining. Uh, Also significant is that Madeleine King is the first woman to hold the job of Resources Minister. And I didn't mention this in the article, but Gareth Parker at uh, the State of the Future event earlier this month noted this. She's also the highest ranking and only Western Australian in Cabinet. So there you go. Pretty significant role that she holds. Uh, And we talked a bit about that. We talked about how important it is to have that representation uh, in Parliament and in Cabinet. But I think what was more interesting to discuss uh, was some of the more contentious issues she's had to confront in the resources portfolio. Well, we've gone from having, what is it, like five, six hundred ministers in Cabinet, or at least it felt that way, to one, but perhaps one that is very relevant to WA in the resources portfolio. Interesting thing about this, when you think about the resources ministry, it's not like uh, for example, disability care or aged care or health care, where you're in a position where you have to make sure that customers and particularly vulnerable people are getting good quality services. In a way, if you're a resources minister, you could sit back and watch the cash flow in, or you could, as some have done, uh, 
sit back and spend lots of cash on different things. In this particular case, Miss King, though, has had an in- interesting year as Resources Minister because she's because the government has introduced a price cap on gas. And I recall back in October last year, she had a bit of a blue, actually, with one of her colleagues, Industry Minister Ed Husick, over this, the way the government would approach the gas industry. She had signed a heads of agreement to get more supply. Ed Husick said, not enough, not enough. I believe he called the gas companies locusts. Well, and now what you've seen is they've gone much further with the price cap and uh, who knows what the outcome of that will be. Jordan, what were your thoughts? What did she say on this topic? I think you're right because if you're in a portfolio like health and education, you're fronting up to more everyday Australians about the services that are delivered to them about pretty pressing issues like whether or not a child can go to school or the quality of treatment that you get when you rock up at a hospital. Pretty emotive issues. In the resources portfolio, you're right to say it's mostly interacting with industry and it's mostly pretty innocuous, if not good news, and certainly for the last 12 months, I imagine, outside of the price caps on wholesale uh, energy, you're right. I don't think that there would have been too much bad news. You could pretty much just watch the royalties flow in and you could be done with it. Now, I, I think one of the most important, or not important, but interesting elements of this is that Madeleine King up to now has been seen if not as an ally of the sector, uh, as someone who has taken the side of industry, certainly publicly. She's a backer of Woodside Scarborough Project, which has been controversial for uh, the left side of politics. Uh, she's come out as a supporter of carbon capture and storage, particularly defending its use at Chevron's Gorgon project. Uh, but I asked her about uh, the cap on energy prices, and I know in the article that uh, there is that $12 per gigajoule price cap on gas. Uh, I understand that the coal price cap has to be enacted at a state government level as opposed to a federal level. And I asked about what the fallout from that was, particularly when there was people like Kevin Gallagher from Santos describing it as Soviet-like uh, intervention. And her opinion seems to be that price caps were not the ideal solution. And certainly compared to some of the rhetoric uh, espoused by the likes of Chris Bowen and Ed Husick, which has been far more aggressive on this front, uh, she doesn't really take an emotive direction in discussing this issue. She says it wasn't an ideal solution, but at the time it was the best one that they could come up with and it was the most effective one that they could come up with. Or the one that didn't cost them any money, perhaps. (laughs) I think that's fair to say as well. Um, Those price caps, as I understand, will only be in place for the next 12 months, but a lot of industry anxiety seems to be in regard to that long-term commitment to the uh, reasonable price standard that was in the uh, discussion paper that accompanied the announcement of those price caps. Uh, Again, though, she was committed to that particular policy. But I think generally speaking, the fact that she wasn't as willing to maybe go after the industry and speak of it in negative terms speaks to some of her broader views of resources generally. Perhaps the way Miss King will be judged in the year ahead and in the time following that is whether we end up with a shortage of gas in Australia, partly driven by the price cap and then by investor uncertainty. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what her plan is to get more gas supplied into the East Coast. Just broadly, though, what's her approach to the Resources Ministry? How does she sort of see her role? She's distinctly pro-gas. And I think it's interesting to note that she doesn't see herself as a cheerleader for industry. I think her exact words was that she's not a rah-rah girl for businesses in uh, resources. But having said that, when you stack this against, say, the position of the Greens, which uh, you can see this in regard to their position on the government's refresh safeguard mechanism, their view is that new gas and 
coal projects are not compatible with reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Ms King takes a distinctly different approach. Her view is that that's not the case and that certainly when we get to 2050, there will have to be some level of gas in the energy mix ongoing. Now, she didn't really comment on how much that is. She didn't talk about that in regard to uh, the granting of new exploration licences, of drilling, of selling gas or exporting gas internationally. Uh, but it seems that she doesn't take that distinctly negative approach that, again, some within the left of the Labor Party and the Greens tend to take on this issue. And even when you talk about this from a social dimension, we spoke a bit about you know the sponsorship of uh, sporting clubs by gas companies, whether or not they have the social licence to do so. And she comes down on the side of saying, yes, in fact, they do. And one of the examples she gave me was that she's a supporter of the Fremantle Dockers. And there's obviously been some controversy over whether or not Woodside should be sponsoring the club. I know that uh, Green's MLC Brad Pettit is opposed to their sponsorship. I know that former Labor Premier Carmen Lawrence is another outspoken opponent of their sponsorship. But Miss King takes the view that, well, if you want Woodside to contribute more to the community and they're handing over millions of dollars to the Fremantle Dockers every single year and working on outreach programs in the regions, is that not contribution enough on top of what they already do in the community? And I guess people will disagree with that, but again, I think that speaks to her view that you know there doesn't have to be this punitive approach uh, to the sector and that resources companies, in her view, are doing a fair bit already. Well, whether they're doing enough or not is a question that is a subject of debate, but it is intriguing that some people want them to do less. The other point that you've raised there, which is worth uh, just going back to, is this idea of having oil and gas in 2050. And a lot of the modelling that I've seen based on this by international organisations that are trying to chart out the pathway to 2050, almost all of it, in fact every example I've seen, says that there will still be some level of oil and gas in 2050, and there will be a lot of carbon capture and storage in 2050. In fact, if we as a, as a society, as a world, wants to try to hit 2050, carbon capture and storage will be almost an essential part of that. So looking forward to 2050, or perhaps not even necessarily that far, what does uh, Madeleine King see as the future of her portfolio? I couldn't help but be cheeky and ask her about nuclear energy. It's one of my favourite pet issues. And I think it was interesting to discuss because the federal opposition has really thrown this onto the table in recent months, has tried to talk about this as much as possible. Peter Dutton, Ted O'Brien, Angus Taylor have come out as supporters. And I asked her about the possibility for expanding Australia's uranium industry. Now, WA has, I think, at least 200,000 tonnes of known deposits of uranium, uh, which obviously we already export a fair deal of it, but what if we were to start using it domestically? Uh, And Ms King was quick to knock that on the head and seemed to identify an element of this debate that I hadn't seen, which was a certain degree of elitism. And she said to herself, it's all well and good when you live on the Gold Coast to engage in this discussion, but invariably these reactors, small modular reactors that uh, people like Peter Dutton are talking about at the moment will end up being placed in industrialised areas like Quinana. And she said, well, it's all well and good to talk about this when you live on a nice beachfront area, but invariably you won't have to live next door to the small modular reactors, which I've noticed this tends to be where the debate goes in the end, whereabouts are we going to place these nuclear reactors? So an interesting 
interesting point there. Some would say that Quinana Beach is a beautiful beach front area, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> Her focus seems to be more around critical minerals uh, in the resources portfolio. And as I know in the article, uh, $220 million was uh, loaned to Hastings Technology and ASEX listed companies through the North Australian Northern Australian Infrastructure Facility, which, Matt, I know you're a big proponent and fan of. Well, we're just asking the questions here at Business News, Jordan. <laughs> but the approach that she was talking about seemed to uh, have some hints of what uh, the Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers was talking about uh, in his cover essay for The Monthly, uh, which described uh, the role of co-investment as a powerful tool uh, for encouraging sectors that the government would like to see uh, succeed in the future. Uh, one of the uh, examples he specifically cited was the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. So it seems like a lot of co-investment and foreign investment and encouraging foreign investment will be key uh, to the government's approach to this problem heading into 2050. Well, some may say there's never been a more exciting time to be a resources minister in Australia, or at the least, there's never been more potential commodities where the country could start to grow its economy. Jordan, thank you so much. Thank you, man. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.